0: Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and Voiceover Colossus Ken Kraus and by our artist of the show. In this episode, a Snap Sessions letter to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, an article on American exceptionalism, and a talk with Ellen Callis, longtime writer-producer for the San Francisco Mime Troupe, theater activist, and eyewitness to rock and roll history.
1: Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link patreon.com forward slash snap sessions or through the link in the snap sessions website thesnapsessions.com and also the link in our show notes the takeaway for many people is that the president doesn't feel necessarily a responsibility to lead either in this country or in the world on climate change and, and preventing uh, the calamity that your administration forecasts do you agree with that that view, and if not, why
2: not? Well, the president, president certainly leaning, uh, leading on what matters most in this process, and that's on having clean air, clean water. In fact, the United States continues to be a, a leader on that front. Even Obama's undersecretary for science didn't believe the radical conclusions of the report that was released. And you have to look at the fact that this report is based on the most extreme modeled scenario, which contradicts long-established trends. Modeling the climate is an extremely complicated science that is never exact. Uh, the biggest thing that we can do is focus on how to make sure we have the cleanest air, the cleanest water, and the President is certainly doing that and certainly leading on that front. Right, how, how
1: is he doing that? The I mean, President's about to go to Buenos Aires and meet with all the leaders of the world's industrialized nations and developing nations as well. Isn't this a great opportunity for him to sit at the table and say, folks? This is what my administration just reported. This is the time that we all have to act in concert to prevent what my administration is forecasting.
2: Once again, um, we think that this is the most extreme version, um, and it's not based on facts. It's based on, it's not data-driven. We'd like to see something that is more data-driven. It's based on modeling, which is extremely hard to do when you're talking about the climate. Again, our focus is on making sure uh, we have the safest, cleanest air and water, and the president's going to do exactly that.
0: Dear Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I noted with interest that in yesterday's press conference you followed the lead of the president and disputed the findings of the National Climate Assessment, which came out on Friday. It totaled over 1,000 pages, was put together by 13 government agencies, and brought together the findings of 300 scientists. The report warns us that the country and the planet will suffer a series of climactic tragedies including rising temperatures, flooding, increased fire dangers, and economic dislocation based on human-induced climate change. This follows the release of the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in October, which described a world of worsening food shortages and wildfires and a mass die-off of coral reefs as soon as 2040. The IPCC report was the result of the work of 91
1: researchers from 40 countries. Yesterday, you said that the report's findings were not based on facts. You continue to say that it's not data-driven. We'd like to see something that is more data-driven. It's based on modeling, which is extremely hard to do when you're talking about the climate. I noticed that you attended Wow Cheetah Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. I went to the website of your esteemed university and noticed lots of professors of biblical studies and Christian ministries. But I failed to notice any Nobel science winners on your present faculty. With this in mind, I was wondering if I could translate a few scientific notions into Ouachita wow University dialect.
0: How many times do y'all have to be hitting the forehead with a shovel before you enter a science class at Ouachita? Do y'all need to pass eighth grade ciphering in order to study gravity? Is gravity subject to belief, like evolution? Or is it accepted science? Y'all are quite brilliant at bullshitting an audience. Did y'all major in hillbilly political science? Wee doggy, you're good at that BS.
1: Some years ago, Republican propagandist Fred Lund said, should the public come to believe that the scientific issues are settled, their views about global warming will change accordingly. Therefore, you need to continue to make the lack of scientific certainty a primary issue in the debate. In other words, the more you bullshit, the more time you will have to continue exploiting people. It worked for the tobacco companies. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. It has been working for the fossil fuel companies. You continue to hope it will work for the Trump administration.
0: As Bill McKibben points out in the most recent issue of The New Yorker, it is a scientific reality that two centuries ago the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere was 275 parts per million. It has now topped 400 parts per million and is rising more than two parts per million per year. McKibben further states, as a team of scientists recently pointed out in the journal Nature Climate Change, the physical shifts we're inflicting on the planet will extend longer than the entire history of human civilization thus far. Temperature is rising. Maybe you will be in hillbilly heaven by then, Sarah, but your descendants will be living in hell on earth and you will be partially responsible for lying them into it. When you talk about the National Climate Assessment not being data-driven, you are getting into that scary saffron territory and that requires a real education. Leave that to the people who actually have to undergo scientific review and double-blind studies. You are over your head and an embarrassment to our country. Perhaps there is a job for you on the faculty at Waucheta University. Sincerely, Doug Nun. Ten minutes baby, why do you take my time? You need little love, play at with my mind. Lord, you get it to me. American exceptionalism or bad example? Right-wing Americans love to revere the Founding Fathers and the notion that the originalism of the Constitution is sacrosanct. The now-deceased Justice Antonin Scalia is held up as the most venerated justice in recent history due to his supposed reverence for things Founding Fatherish. Right-wingers love images of Jesus handing down laws to a group of American citizens from an altar-like dais with Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and Madison looking on. What a team! How could they ever have made any mistakes?
1: Yet enslavement of African Americans was written into the U.S. Constitution. Southern representatives at the Constitutional Convention won the right to count slaves as three-fifths people for representative purposes, yet deny them any other rights due citizens. And as for Native Americans... Jefferson spoke of the need to eliminate or extirpate tribes across the new country. According to a recent New Yorker article, after the Civil War, General Philip Sheridan spoke of annihilation, obliteration, and complete destruction as the only way to handle the native population. Granted, Sheridan was not a founding father, yet he is revered as a Civil War and Indian War hero.
0: The celebration of those who wrote the Constitution and of heroes of American history has continued out of all proportion to their moral rectitude. The Constitution they wrote condoned slavery and dismissed any legal rights for the Indian population. The Founding Fathers were people who wrote a Constitution which mostly has worked over time but has had major weaknesses. Most recently, we see its shortcomings in regard to reigning in an arbitrary and amoral leader I'm (laughs) a very stable genius. when his party controls both the legislative and judicial branches. And that silly Second Amendment (laughs) has been a grammatical and moral nightmare.
1: Yet the self-congratulatory (laughs) chest-beating For American exceptionalism from people on the right continues unabated. This in spite of the fact that we allowed slavery for 250 years, then allowed for legal apartheid through Jim Crow laws for another 100 years, and condoned and optimized the slaughter of the Indian population on racial grounds. Between 1500 and 1900, the native population of U.S. territories dropped from many millions to around 200,000. In spite of this carnage, on the right, the Founding Fathers are still celebrated as geniuses and moral giants, and American history is still treated as a continuation of biblically sanctioned perfection.
0: The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. A recent article in The New Yorker shows that Hitler's Nazis... Are only following orders, nothing more. ...found many aspects of American race law worth emulating when they came to power in the early 1930s, most especially Jim Crow laws and the legal treatment of our native population. Apparently, those who wrote the Jim Crow laws and who had led the haphazard genocide on American Indians were seen as examples by Hitler and Nazi lawyers. Very interesting, Legal historian James Q. Whitman's book, Hitler's American Model, the United States, and the Making of Nazi Race Law, is analyzed in great detail by the New Yorker's Alex Ross in a recent article called The Hitler Vortex.
1: Here we find that Jim Crow laws in the American South were admired by Hitler's regime and emulated by Nazi legal scholars. Whitman identifies many commonalities between Nazi legislation in the early 1930s, which sought to exclude Jews from German public life, and Jim Crow laws. Whitman points out that Nazi lawyers and officials took inspiration and concrete guidance from legal practice across the Atlantic. What the Nazis saw across the Atlantic was a treasure chest of discriminatory laws like the 1924 Race-Based Immigration Act as well as Race-Based Citizenship and race-based anti-miscegenation laws. The Nazis saw American laws providing examples of deeply institutionalized discrimination. It provided them an example on how to proceed with their own race laws against Jews.
0: The New Yorker tells us the Nazis idolized many aspects of American society. The cult of sport, Hollywood production values, the mythology of the frontier. From boyhood on, Hitler devoured the westerns of the popular German novelist Karl May. In 1928, Hitler remarked approvingly that white settlers in America had gunned down the millions of redskins to a few hundred thousand. When he spoke of Lebensraum, the German drive for living space in Eastern Europe, he often had America in mind.
1: Whitman methodically explores how the Nazis took inspiration from American racism of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He notes that, in Mein Kampf, Hitler praises America as the one state that has made progress towards a primarily racial conception of citizenship by excluding certain races from naturalization.
0: Wow, imagine that. The descendants of our founding fathers wrote laws that inspired the Nazis' to to write their own cruel, race-based laws. And our notion of Manifest Destiny It's
1: Manifest Destiny! You can't fight it, neither can I!
0: was an inspiration to Hitler when he imagined his armies blitzing eastwards into the Soviet Union and taking over farmlands for Aryans. Apparently, Hitler made frequent mention of the American West in the early months of the Soviet invasion. The Volga would be our Mississippi, he said. Here's to the state of Mississippi. Europe and not America will be the land of unlimited possibilities. Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine would be populated by pioneer farmer-soldier families. Autobonds would cut through fields of grain. The present occupants of these lands, tens of millions of them, would be starved to death. Granted, there is no mention of giving them blankets laced with smallpox, but otherwise, it is remarkably similar to American military voices in Bury My Heart at
2: Wounded Me.
1: Now, just because the Nazis drew inspiration from American race laws and historical precedent doesn't mean that George Washington was Hitler's great-grandpa. But it does give one pause. What makes us so special? So much of what we have done historically has been allowed to stand because we have won various wars. History is written by the victors we methodically pushed the Indians out of their land and we allowed and condoned slavery for 250 years and then put up with Jim Crow for another 100, all while boasting to the rest of the world about our powerful democracy and human rights. According to the New Yorker article, America's knack for maintaining an air of robust innocence in the wake of mass death struck Hitler as an example to be emulated. Very interesting.
0: If the rest of the world had found our genocide of Native Americans morally repugnant at the end of the 19th century and invaded our country, would we have had the high moral ground? If the British Empire had followed on its outlying of the slave trade in the early 19th century with an invasion of the United States to extinguish slavery, would we have had an ethical leg to stand on? If there had been Nuremberg trials here, how would we have done? When people boast about American exceptionalism, I say, crack a history book. We've got a long way to go.
2: Are the history books tell it? They tell it so well. The cavalry charged. The Country was young with God on its side.
0: And now, Snap Sessions interview with Ellen Callis. Ellen's a founding member of Hit and Run Theater, helping form the group back in 1979. In 1986, she became a writer-producer for the San Francisco Mime Troupe, where Ellen's been a collective member ever since. Ladies and gentlemen, our interview with Ellen Callis. Anyway, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Doug Nunn with Ellen Callis, my old hit-and-run theater um, compatriot for many, many moons. And um, Ellen has been, even for more moons, um, a writer-producer at the San Francisco Mime Troupe. And, um... Anyway, I just wondered if you might tell us a little bit about your uh, how you overview of your career.
3: Okay, I'm currently with the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Uh, I have been there for 32 years, which is amazing to me got there quite by fluke and have been there ever since. I'm a collective member, longtime company member of then every job there is to do there in Just a
0: reminder the San Francisco mime troupe is a sort of a collective theater that's been working out of San Francisco since 1959, right? Origins wise. That's
3: right. That's right. Uh, we, so we don't do mime. Right. I think it that's the biggest the biggest point to get across. It's not that kind of mime. It was pantomime in the sense, in the early days of kind of performance art when it first started, but it's basically popular political people's theater. We use the word mime in the classic sense, the exaggeration of daily life and story and song. So I've been with the troupe for 32 years. Prior to that, I lived in Mendocino and was a founding member of the Hit and Run Theater Company, where we did improv and sketch, political sketch comedy, and just fun stuff, and we're our own best friends. And prior to that, I lived um, in New York City, and prior in Woodstock, New York, and prior to that, I lived where I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Before that, I was already putting on plays for my neighborhood friends. I had um, I had two puppets. I had a mar- two marionettes that I got from my older cousin, Marianne. One was Ivan the Russian Boy, and one was Cinderella. And in post-war Chicago, early suburbs, where there were about 5,000 kids to a block, it was a, a captive audience. So I used to do puppet shows. And so that was my first theatrical foray. And at that same time, so this is about 19... 19- Fifty-three, uh, because my brother was just born, and we moved into this apartment. And for years, I thought he came with the apartment uh, <laughs> because my mom literally went into labor the day the day we moved in. So, to apologies to her wonderful brother, Louis. <laughs> yes. and I, Oh, I have my own room, not anyway. So yeah, so I was always the one. I was the cousin that always bossed the little cousins around. And any time we would go to somebody's house. If they had a big dining room opening, I saw it as a proscenium, so I was always making my little cousins, I was casting them in plays. Early, early plays, like the classic melodrama, The Rent, I can't pay the rent, you must pay the rent. So that was pretty standard uh, theatrical procedure for me in those days. Um, I had a ticket punch, so I I would make the tickets and punch the tickets for the kids to come in and see my puppet shows, which had two set changes. One was an indoor scene and one was an outdoor scene. So
0: you were early on into production. Oh, early
3: on into production, I was, you know, an entrepreneur for sure. I wrote and produced and made tickets for my plays. So Mm -hmm. And I I loved it. But upstairs in the apartment, these were all in our basement, we had one of those gigantic uh, wooden boxes, one of the early TVs. It was a large box with a screen about seven inches wide. And um, there weren't that many shows on TV, but the one that really just cut me to the bone was The Show of Shows, which was starring Sid Caesar, Howard Morris, Carl Reiner, and uh, Imogene Coca. And Imogene Coca has the same birthday as me, as does Steamboat Willie. So I share my birthday. There you go. There's
0: two (laughs) classics. One one of the rodent world, mind you.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, later of Disney fame. And uh, Imogene Coca, who was hilarious. And I'd never seen a funny woman like that before, especially on TV. And they did sketch comedy. And and sometimes they never even spoke a word, but they were so funny. And I literally remember in my young age, falling out of the chair laughing, you know, just I just couldn't stop laughing. They were so funny. They just classic deadpans, just really simple, simple, straightforward, but really funny, funny stuff. I was the kid that was always about two um, trends behind everybody. You know, I, no matter how hard I tried, I could never I could never fit in. I always wore circle pins after they were already out. You know, I was just kind of a dweeb. And uh, so I kind of, even though I had this great childhood and this wonderful family, by the time middle school and the first year of high school hit, I was just... Uh, this is, this is not going to work. I felt really a, a fish out of water. And to make matters worse, um, uh, a November afternoon, morning actually, in my sophomore class, we got the news that Kennedy was shot. And there was this just gigantic uh, cloud that just covered the nation. Nobody could believe it, you know, that this had happened. And it was just so sad and so depressing. About a month or so later, my dad came home with this magazine. It was Fab Magazine. and It was an English magazine. He had found it in a newsstand. He said, I thought you might be interested in this. And there was these pictures of these mop tops. Well, meanwhile, I had gone to the record store and there were these stickers everywhere that said the Beatles are coming, the Beatles are coming. And I didn't know what they were talking about. And suddenly I went into... In those days, I used to have these little listening booths so you could put an album on, you could actually listen to the album before you bought it, you know, to the tune of five big bucks. And so I remember the first Beatles song I heard was Don't Bother Me by George Harrison, and I was just blown away. Because up until that point, there had been a lot of, you know, doo-wop music, there had been a lot of folk music and all that kind of stuff, but, um, you know, nothing really grabbed me, and that grabbed me. And so suddenly... um, the next thing I knew it was Ed Sullivan and along with everybody else I was smitten and so the year between Just a reminder
0: that Beatles were on Ed Sullivan in on January of 64? Yeah, actually like I think that? it was uh-huh. February. There February There were three,
3: three, three, three weekends in a row and it was like everything stopped and I remember just sitting there I was never a screamer I want to stand on that record. My never, sister was
0: a screamer. I was
3: never a screamer, but I was definitely um, transfixed. And they were unlike anything that I'd ever experienced before because they were talented, clear. They were cute, obviously, but they were funny and irreverent and smart. and I And I really appreciated that. And they just... We're playing by the rules. And I really appreciated that because it was like they gave everybody permission just to be yourself. You know, at a point in my life where I was trying really hard to fit in and failing miserably, it was like they came along and said, don't bother. And it was like, yes. That, we decided that that summer we were going to meet the Beatles in September, and that was our goal. So we started by meeting the Stones quite by accident because oh. there was a, a girl at our high school. Her name was Susie Chess, and her brother was Marshall. Her, her dad ran Chess Records. She she was always bragging about that, so one day she said, (laughs) (laughs) she was like, the Rolling Stones are recording at my dad's studio. And it was like, what? And she said, yeah, the Rolling Stones are recording at my dad's studio, 2120 South Michigan Avenue, like the the song says. So he said, huh. And so we thought... We, we were, like, in complete spy mode. It was like if James Bond, you know, had met a bunch of teeny boppers, that was us. And so we kind of, that was our mission this summer. So we started off with the stones. We found out where they were staying. We made them a couple of heart-shaped cakes and um, and went down to the Water Tower Inn, which is no longer in existence. I understand Bill Wyman loves heart-shaped cakes. <laughs> yeah. And we, and we went to, we, we, we made up this ridiculous story. Because we really, we had a fan magazine and we didn't know which stone was. Which, but we just knew that they were, you know, this English group, and they were rising. If we could meet them, then this would be good practice to meet the Beatles. So we drove down there, and we made up this ridiculous story about how we drove all the way from Milwaukee, and, you know, we would have been there sooner, but somebody so-and-so had died, and that's why we weren't there a couple days earlier to be with the crowd, you know. Nobody knew the Stones then. And so we showed up to the hotel. We went to the desk clerk, and we said, hi, we're, fr- we're, we're like the Rolling Stone fan club. And the guy goes, oh! that's so nice. He said, let me get them. And sure enough, we're sitting there in a little heart-shaped case, and the elevator door opens, and out walks Mick and Keith. Oh, wow. And they were they were thrilled, you know, because they had just come from Hollywood, and they had been on this show called The Hollywood Palace. Dean Martin was ho- hosting, and just made fun of them, and it was rude on national television. And basically, they were the stones, but their feelings were hurt. So they were suddenly thrilled at these girls with these heart-shaped cakes. We all took pictures. And
0: girls with light, white lipstick. White lipstick. No, well, white we
3: were shirt. actually, this was before you even in teeny bopper mode, we were all wearing our Easter clothes. <laughs> I have this picture of me, my little Easter coat, my <laughs> peel box hat, you know. <laughs> and, um, but they were genuinely thrilled that actually we had, you know, we knew who they were, uh, even though we weren't quite sure which one's Keith and which one was Mick. And then subsequently we met the next couple of days, you know, he went to the had breakfast with them in the airport, completely innocent, you know. And Keith Richards had been had talked about how his whole record album collection was stolen while he was on the road, so we bought Chuck Berry's greatest hits and gave it to him and he was Oh that's
0: great. You gave that to Keith Richards. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. It was and it was very sweet. We had saved all our babysitting money. We had made on top of everything else, because one of our friends, her father knew somebody on the Chicago Tribune who interviewed us as Beatles fans, and they were going to do an article and we were going to present this hooked rug that we made to the Beatles, right? And so they had our pictures in the paper, along with our... They also did a story with our arch nemesis. We were on the north side. They were on the south side, who ran the Beatle Fan Society. And that was Angie Baldwin and the Strohacker twins. (laughs) (laughs) Not these Strohacker (laughs) twins. Cindy and Kathy Strohacker and Angie Baldwin. And they were like, we're going to meet them. No, we're going to meet them. Anyway... um, The day came and we were all supposed to, we were supposed to present them with our individual presence at this press conference. And this reporter just kind of shined us on and said, uh, oh, sorry, this is not happening. And we were crushed. And so we were at the airport. and We were determined to give this. This rug to the Beatles, and so we literally stormed out onto. This is Midway Airport. I can imagine the jet starting to take off, and you guys <laughs> running along the <laughs> side no, of them, they, waving the rug. Pretty actually. <laughs> they they landed. The, those were the days with before <laughs> the the airlock thing. So everybody came down the steps, you know, uh, uh, and uh, they got in their limo and down there, and we were at the other end of the of the airfield, hiding in this air this hangar with our rug. And they came, and they said so they came. We literally they slowed down, and we were like. Here's the rug. And they stopped and they were hello, how are you doing? Everything is great. And they said, take the rug, you know, and they were like, and we were like, yes, take the rug. And, and the road manager was pushing it out. We were pushing it in, pushing it out. And then, and then the limo driver put the things up and uh, the windows up and they drove away. It was like, wow, they didn't get the rug. And then we went to the concert, which was fabulous. And then we went back to the hotel convinced that they were going to stay because we had spent our babysitting money to rent the penthouse at the the presidential suite penthouse at the conrad hilton hotel because of all the hotels we cased we figured this was the most secure for the beatles as it turned out they didn't spend the night in chicago they flew directly from the concert to detroit so we were like so all night that all night long, we were in our hotel room that we'd spent our $100 babysitting money on. And I remember sitting at the window looking at this train, the trains across the way on Grant Park, there there was a little train thing, and they would just go back and forth and like lock cars and unlock cars and lock cars and unlock cars. And it was just like one of those moments in your life where it's like, oh, so close. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, the rug made it because. Um, Two days later, when I was with my family for Labor Day, the rest of my buddies jumped in the car, drove to Windsor, Ontario, bulldozed their way into a hotel there, and somehow the doorman gave it. And years we found out that the rug actually was in George Harrison's like trophy room of his house. Eventually, so very nice. Yeah, major coup. And so it was. um not that much longer after that, uh, at the end of the school year, I moved to New York. We, uh, he was a musician playing with a Canadian group called the Dirty Shames, which was out of Toronto. Great guitar player named Amos Garrett. I hope he's still out there. And uh, they played, they had a gig, a steady gig in New York and at this place called the Dom, which was on 8th Street. And it was downstairs. The Dom means, I think, the home in Ukrainian. The East Village was a Ukrainian village, a Ukrainian neighborhood at that time. So they were downstairs, and the Dom was also the home club of the Velvet Underground. And so I saw all these. It was great. It was great. It was like 1967 in the village, in the East Village. And uh, we got a little apartment on 4th Street, and uh, 19, in the spring of 67, uh, we all, my Roy and myself, his co- writer Bob Smith and his wife Alice drove west they dropped me off in Chicago because my brother was graduating from uh, grammar school because they didn't have middle school then and uh they went on to the Monterey Pop Festival and he came back they came back changed you know um and Roy and Bob decided they were going to form their own band, and this was it. And so the name of the band, you know, names, hours of trying to come up with names. And this woman who was a college roommate of Alice named Lori Colwin, who went on to be a writer before she passed, a famous writer before she passed away, came up with the name Catmother and the All Night Newsboys, Boys. And somehow that stuck. And so the band got together, and uh, the band at that point was Roy, Bob, Jay Unger, a mandolin player, extraordinary, who went on to write the music for the Ken Burns Civil War series. Um, uh, Charlie Chin, who's out here now, um, also excellent, out of the folk scene. Um, Michael Equin was drums, and, and a string of guitar players. It was, like, it was like that, you know how in Spinal Tap they had all the different drummers? Yeah, right. Cat Mother yeah. had like all the different guitar players. And um, anyway, but they were great. They were like the hit of the village. Everybody loved them. The biggest thing since the Love and Spoonful. Everybody. In the spring, uh, we moved up to Woodstock and uh, Saugerties, actually. And we rented a farm. From this crazy old lady who had a specialty food store in town who had this vision. Apparently she had been to a renaissance fair at some point and she had this vision of having renaissance fairs. And since one of the people in the band at that point was a violin player, she had, you can move into my farm and you and there's a stage there and you can have these renaissance fairs. And we said, okay. So instead of having a renaissance fair, every two weeks we had these things that we called sound festivals. And our friend Jay Moss and the Pablo Light Show would come up and they would do light shows. And we invited all of our musician friends from the village um, and from the Woodstock area, too. So we had people like from Tim Harden to, you know, Bunky and Jake who were great. All these different people and they would perform. And so every two weeks it was a different bunch of people that all stayed in our house, which was interesting because it was... A house that had, got about twenty rooms. It was built on a hillside on three different levels, and at one point it was a home for insane children, and so it was yeah. full of ghosts and creepy. A spooky things. So Real
0: spooky. You guys ended up at Woodstock, and was that August of '69? No, '68. We 68, actually 68. did.
3: So we actually did the first Woodstock festival. You know, so we did it every week. The guys. The guys that did the festival later had been to our show, you know, and said, huh, I think... This you know, is how you do it this with a, Yeah, really... But it was it was fun. And people, years later, I met people, I met a guy who actually went there. But uh, yeah, so every every two weeks, we had these sound festivals. And then, uh, but our house didn't have any heat. And during that point, uh, it was clear that we had to move back to the city. Enter. So
0: this is early 69. So enter. And,
3: and, and enter, mid, summer 69. Enter this guy named Michael Jeffries, who was also a resident in Woodstock. And he happened to be the manager of Jimi Hendrix. Anyway, Michael Jeffries came in, and he was smooth, you know, he was really smooth, and he, like, re- seduced the band with his kind of countercultural uh, suaveness, you know, and he was English on top of it. I was like, all right, boys, you know, I believe in the artist. Ah, uh, trust me, you know, I... W-. And, and they were all kind of smitten with him, because they'd never met anybody like him. And I remember Alice and I going, watch out, you know, but they never listened to us, so... So we were there, so that's when the band was the opening act for, for uh, Jimi Hendrix for about a year. They toured. So the limousine would pick him up every Thursday morning, whisk them off to the airport, and they played. And by this point, this was the summer... Summer of 69, 69 or summer of 70. Summer of 69. I think he died in the fall of 70. 70, yeah. Because mm-hmm. we were on our way to England. They were going to do the tour with him there. But um, yeah, so, the, so they toured with them all through summer of 69, did every rock and roll festival there was. And so the... They would pick them up on Thursday morning and drop them off Monday morning. And they'd kind of sleep for two days and then go off again. Meanwhile, Alice and I and the girls were living in this four-story place up in Woodstock at Michael Jeffreys' house. And he was off in the Bahamas or something. And we were looking around at this house that Jimmy's money built <laughs> and looking at what's wrong with this picture. And then it really became apparent because there was a couple of different things happening at that point. Jimi Hendrix wasn't, he'd produced their first album. Actually, Jimmy did. He was really cool. Very sweet. Very quiet, but um, very put upon, and so he was. He wanted to make his own music, and for everybody that surrounded him, he was kind of their cash cow. So it was, it was, it was a tragedy. He was very unhappy. So you're up there in Woodstock, and so
0: what? It what we saw, we you...
3: saw what's wrong with this picture. You know, yeah, he's yeah. living in this palatial place. We're living in, and and but we're the people making the monies, and you know, this is what. Allison, I've been saying because what he would do is he would sign these record contracts and I'll get all these advance monies and everything. We wouldn't see any of it. We would just, you know, our bills would be paid, but we didn't, we weren't very expensive, you know, as our rent. And so, meanwhile, the money was clearly going someplace else in the classic Bahamian bank account, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, um... It, they each band member took some money and bought a van, a band and we all literally wagon trained it out to california and landed on muir beach we had we <laughs> it took us 30 seconds to realize when we got to san francisco that that moment had gone you know it was autumn of 69 and it was already kind of you know it was in that kind of CD kind of more speed than acid kind of feeling and so he said you And so people, we would spend the days looking, driving around, dividing up in our vans, looking at places we could rent, the big white elephants. And so somebody said, check out Mendocino. You can rent a farm up there for 50 bucks a month. I said, we're there. (laughs) (laughs) So Roy and I and our daughter, Shaughness, packed up our van and drove up to Mendocino and um, parked on the bluff without realizing where we were. It was dark, November. And we woke up the next morning and... There it was. It was like the love boat, you know. Was, was this an Elk or was this in Mendoza? No, this was Mendocino. Okay. At that point. So okay, yeah. Across, you know, so we literally pulled off the side of Route 1 and parked our van. And the next morning we woke up and, and there was all of Mendocino in the bay in front of us and it looked like this beautiful little Victorian ship, you know. I said, wow, that looks cool. We drove into town, went to the Seagull for breakfast.
0: The Seagull was an old restaurant in Mendocino for many, many
3: years. We used to say if, if Mendocino... W- it was like a campus without a college, but the Seagull was kind of like the student union. You go in there and you see everybody. and But we didn't know anybody then. But now that I look back on that day, I realized... I now know everybody that was in there at that moment. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the first person I saw was this guy named John Chamberlain. And John Chamberlain
0: was a longtime uh, Mendocino graphic artist and musician and
3: uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, he ends up you end up meeting John who was But not at that morning. He was just happened to be doodling there. Later that so what we this is how we would do things. We would pick up hitchhikers back in the day when people would hitchhike and we'd ask them things like, What's a good place to eat? Where can you you know, what are rents? like her? And blah, 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 blah. So somebody said, go see Paul Johnson. And he lives right at the base of Albion Ridge. He knows everybody. So we went and knocked on the door that night and walked in. And sure enough, there's Paul Johnson, a musician, who was actually one of the original Beach Boys before they were the Beach Boys. Wow. And he had dropped out and was living in Mendocino with his wife, Vivian, and kids. And, um, and next to him was playing what guitar was John Chamberlain. So, what? what? That's like I saw this morning, doodling. So, um... Before we knew it, John was in, uh, Paul was in the band, and Catmother in its Mendocino days, and um, so we started doing week, almost weekly, uh, boogies. We called them up at Eagles Hall in Fort Bragg, and Alice and I would do the door. I think we charged a buck, and it was amazing because at that point the area was filled with people that you know had had left their urban and suburban roots from elsewhere and had gone back to the land and were warming themselves by the light of their kerosene night, but hadn't really been to a rock and roll show for a while so it was a captive audience and it was fun the thing that was great about mendocino is living in this incredibly creative community with these really smart and educated people but you had to make you had to bring your own culture with you you know there was no tv there certainly wasn't any cable at that point um I think if you were lucky, you would catch a, a TV show from Eureka once in a while. if The air was really clear. But uh, So we had to make our own entertainment. And in uh, a particularly rainy winter, we started meeting, a bunch of us started meeting at a, a, a barn out on Little Lake Road. We started doing improvisations. Now, I grew up in Chicago. So and- this
0: would be mid-70s by now?
3: Yeah, this is around 1975. And uh, we just met every Tuesday night. It was just like like playgroup. That's what we called it. That actually seven or eight
0: of you, ten of yeah, you. Yeah, there
3: was yeah, and there was an odd combination of people. There was a guy named Biff Rose who was a, a singer songwriter, completely funny and nuts. Uh, Antonia Lamb, myself. Peter White, uh, a guy named Chris. it was just a bunch of Donna Brown, uh whose barn it was and uh we and I had I knew enough about improv because I grew up in Chicago and and cut my teeth and said The capital, of, uh, the improv. capital of improv, the capital of improv that where it was born in its mm-hmm. official day, thank you Viola Spolin, that's a whole other story. Yeah, so we just did improv and then eventually we you know had kids, let's do a show. So Mendocino was um Oh, so yeah, it was uh, coming up to the bicentennial. So a bunch of us got together, and uh, we wrote skits uh, in this loose framework, this kind of chronological history of uh, the United States of America, and we called it 200 Years of Madness. And uh, the group grew. We had a musical component, and uh, we did it out at this place called Toad Hall, which was this really amazing old gay nightclub from the 40s that was in the middle of the Redwoods that had been... um, defunct for years until a bunch of our friends resurrected it and we did the show out there and it was a huge success and we got you know and it was fun it was just fun and then a couple of years later we did another one called happy birthday mendocino where we really uh researched the history of mendocino which in itself is fascinating
0: and you turned that into a skit show with that even had some songs in it it did
3: we, we even had a film element in it Yeah, so we were we were on a roll. We had a great time, and then shortly thereafter, I mean, some of the people, my my dear sister Pamela Stoneham Sims Weingard, oh hello, McGee, <laughs> <laughs> my comedy buddy, uh, had also been doing some work with a couple other people, yourself included, and so it was it was like Malta or something like that, or Yalta, or or multi-meal. We all just kind of met together and decided we would do a Christmas show and that show became uh, Tis the Season and we actually named ourselves Hit and Run Theater. Um
0: tell us a little bit about the early days of Hit and Run, how it what it meant and how it works.
3: Well, it was um well, first of all, it's like falling in love with people, you know, it's like when you fall in love with people you're you're playing with on stage, it's all you want to do is do it, you know, and so when you're, we ended up becoming our own best friends and clearly that was great because we spent a lot of time together and that was our choice. We all had separate jobs because that's what we needed to do to make a living up there and, you know, economic opportunities up there weren't great, so we were Doing a lot of restaurant work.
0: <laughs> so we were we were a, a theater group that had day jobs and got together in the evening and wrote skits and did and learned how to do improvisation and uh, would put on our own home, homemade shows.
3: And we were very flexible and we were also very influenced by the different genres that that influenced us when we were growing up, but also presently. I, I loved it. I, I loved I loved the sense of teamwork. I loved we did at one point. We did a, a brand new comedy review every month called Laugh Fest, and so it was classic. It was like the old writer's room on the show of shows. You know, we'd meet once a month and we'd all bring out our stuff, you know, what to do in writing, and so, um... We opened for uh, six months before Professional Comics,
0: who would be the headliner, and we would write a new show every month to do on Friday and Saturday night of a weekend and have a comic on who would do the second half. So it forced us to write on a regular basis
3: and it was great cuz it really it, it enabled a, us as writers and performers to really stretch our wings and 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 find our own styles cuz each of us had a different style and a different uh, way of writing and performing and and it really became we complemented each other and i think that's what was so great and The second one, the one that's my particular favorite, was the comedy Poltergeist. And that was a little bit more extended because that was more of a family drama. And the story is... This This had
0: homemade special effects in it, too. Oh,
3: very special. Floating furniture. Uh, It was about the time Poltergeist had come out. And it was kind of simul-sync because I don't think any of us had even seen the movie before we actually wrote the bit. It was weird. But, you know, it's that kind of synchronistic osmosis thing. And the story was about this little girl who was in trouble with her parents because she was, you know, skipping out on meaning instead of going to meanies or, you know, she was going to Glee Club and her parents were, you know, were very grouchy at her and she was, everything was really serious. And so she was uh, pulled into the television uh, by watching an old comedy show and then it was just every... Silly joke. There's a parapsychologist. You guys played. Hi. What are the parapsychologists? This was is a
0: two-headed, a two-headed French chef plays a pair of psychologists.
3: Right, and it was just silly, and it, it turned out it had been the house was built on the site of an old borscht Belt uh, comedy club, and so
0: it was possessed by borscht Belt comedian spirits. And it was
3: just ridiculous because it was so funny because it was the opposite of all. So I I just loved that because it was just so much fun to play. But there were a lot of great ones, and we did serious pieces too. I mean, we did some real kind of internal monologues pieces and and uh, Tracy and I did a couple pieces together that were really you know talking about two two best friends aging over the years and it was, so our styles really changed and so we went from um, you know these really touching wonderful kind of feely you know deep feeling kind of things to just completely ridiculous you know writing the the cook's back you know and, you know against the uh, what was that uh, The assholes on vacation, I don't know if you can say that. Yeah, you can say
0: that, definitely.
3: (laughs) But, um, you know, I think one of my favorite moments was personally, was um, swinging on a rope on stage with, with a fake guitar on my back during uh, the Arnold Vicious punk rock opera. That uh, we should
0: remind the p- folks that we wrote a, a punk rock opera, which we uh, did over two seasons. It became a show called Rock Rockalypse in 1984. And anyway, it was all the songs and so forth, and uh, many of us found our inner punk to play the parts,
3: too. Yeah, actually, I, I think it's pretty brilliant still. You know, it was, I think it's really, you know... Anyway... So we wrote all
0: our own stuff for a, we wrote a a, seven, of, seven solid mm-hmm. years.
3: Mendocino for all its beauty, at the time, was a particularly diverse place. And I really missed the multi- multicultural... Being a city kid, I grew up in Chicago, you know... Um, I missed the multicultural aspect of living in the city and when we were back down there here I was reminded how much I missed it so
0: so you end up down here. You're renting a place on Potrero Hill, I yeah. think. Yeah. And you found a job with the San Francisco Mime Troop. <laughs> yeah.
3: Within a couple of weeks, I was, you know, I, I had done a couple of small jobs. But uh, my friend Alice was working at ACT, Alice Smith. And um, she was friends with a woman named Maria, who was an ex-mime trooper, also lived next door. And the Mime Troop was looking for an office manager at that time. And I needed a job. So I walked in. And they talked to me and hired me on the spot. Because I think they got the fact that as a hit-and-run team member, <laughs> you know, that's... that's Oh, yeah, you get it.
0: Yeah, you I think you perhaps shared a, a vision of the, you know, political uses of theater with the Mind Troupe. And mm-hmm. that's one of their, you know, standing emblems is, you know, pol- political activist theater.
3: That, and also that, you know, here's a person that will do any job at any time, which is what Hit one was all about and clearly what The Mind troop was all about. It's that kind of egalitarian, you know, you talk the talk, you have to walk the walk, so.
0: So you end up, you start as an office manager circa 1986, 87. 86, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then you you learn
3: the process from Joan and Holden. Yeah, so I started, you know, I just kind yeah. of, I moved, and then I became production manager and then I became, and then I was asked into the collective and then we, in 1988, we were trying to find a, a subject matter to do something for the summer show, which we do every year and I had I had this idea about this guy that falls asleep and wakes up and it's twenty years later. Basically Rip Van Winkle. And so Bing, uh, so that was my first. That was a hippie. He falls asleep in '68 yeah, and yeah. ends up
0: waking up in 1988 yeah. as a Rip Van Winkle story about the changes in America. Right,
3: because he was on his way to the Chicago convention and then somebody dosed him in Golden Gate Park and he fell asleep. Next thing you know, it's 1988, which is when we did the show. You know, it was 20 years later. Now, now it's 15. that was an inspired <laughs>
0: show. So that was yeah, you, you, you as as. As part of the thing, we'll talk about the process in a minute, but you bring in an idea and then you you write as much of it and the group contributes to the writing process.
3: Yeah, well, we all do. Yeah, yeah, we'll
0: talk about that. So you came in when Joan Holden was the main writer and Dan... Chumley. Dan Chumley was the director and you had Keiko. You had a variety of people. Yeah, I
3: was... uh, Ed Holmes and I came in in 1986 together. Joan Holden, Dan Chumley... Arthur Holden, Sharon Lockwood, Bruce Barthol, these were all people who had been there for at least 20, What was us see, the, the 1986, at least 15 years prior. So the
0: Mind Troupe writes its shows together is is a collective company and includes this group of really active people from the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah,
3: it's multi-generational and multicultural and they were actually, at that time, particularly, one of the few groups that really embraced the concept of blind casting. You know, So that nowadays, you know, nobody thinks about it. You know, when Hamilton's on stage, it doesn't occur to people that there are black people playing George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, you know. Uh, But the Mime Troupe did that before.
0: Yeah, they did that like 35 years ago. Yeah. It was certainly in your era, the last 30 years. Yeah, Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, and actually. Before that, too, they challenged the racial stereotypes. One of the the most controversial shows the troupe ever did in the 60s was the minstrel show, where it, they, it, it was done like an old minstrel show, and everybody was in blackface, white and black actors, you know, and uh, it was um, called Civil Rights in a Crackle Barrel, and it was super controversial and got... I mean, it all comes back to follow the money, you know, the disproportionate, uh, you know, uh, of wealth pow- and power, the corporate elite, and you know, uh, onwards and onwards. But, you know, we used to be able to focus in on things like we would say, let's do a show about GMOs. You know, because this is disturbing. And we would do all the research and we'd have people come in. We would do these things called P.E.s, political education. We would have experts come in and talk to us as a group. And then, you know, armed with the subject matter and the research, then we would start to think about story, you know, and then maybe genre. And then maybe characters and how we want to do it. What You know, know, I really want to do like a Roman kind of thing. Really, I want to do a Western, you know. But what fits, you know, so...
0: And then you end up putting it together in a script and then you have to have songs to it. Usually... Number similar to a musical, maybe five songs. Yeah,
3: yeah, it depends on the show. I mean, and the songs come in later. I mean, the script is usually developed before the songs are. You know, the the songs happen pretty, if not, in rehearsal, pretty close to the beginning of it. You know, and the other thing is because you know money is so tight these days, we don't even have much rehearsal time. So so much of it is happening on the rehearsal time you know so it's it's tough and that's why it's important to have really good actors that can pick up you know pick it up quickly and we have open and stuff we it, lately it's been a little bit more difficult cuz our cast we've been only having four person cast the last few years because um of finances you know because we're uh, a union company which is part of the politics and also part of the rub you know so um so you have
0: to you work with fewer people to pay be able to pay everybody
3: yeah i mean it's just it's the it's this really tough economic balancing act. We have, uh, we, I have a couple of years ago, we created this thing that we bring to us in the parks, and it's a big banner. It's called The Cost of Free. And we literally broke down because people think you just come to the park and roll out of your truck and la, 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 la. We want
0: to say the San Francisco Mime Troupe often has shows in parks. Yeah, and summer. often people get, enter and can sit down and watch the show for free, but they pass the hat, basically, right, to right. try to get money from but the crowd. But you're
3: under no obligation, you know, to pay, yeah. just, you know, and many do, many don't, you know. Some people put in a fat 20 or 30, and some people put in pennies, you know, it, and so... But, But what we realized is that many people don't realize what the cost of doing a show in the parks is. You know, a permit for a single park can be 700 bucks. Then you add in porta-potties. You
0: also add in the money that went into writing it, producing it, playing in it, directing it, etc., which is should be enough money for these people to survive as well. Right. And you've got a very difficult It's hard to be an artist in the United States.
3: And it's even harder to be an artist in San Francisco these days because it's so ridiculously expensive. Mhm. I mean, we have everything from uh, elementary school teachers call call us up and we do, you know, go to the schools or they bring the kids. Uh, We have our summer workshop where people come out for the summer and and it's basically a free workshop and an exchange. They help us set up and strike in the parks. So they're our our crew. Uh, We have our youth theater project, which we do every spring and sometimes also in the fall. Then we do individual projects that if we get funding for, we'll do that. Like I did a project in the Bayview last year with a bunch of kids out there about the environmental... Uh, environmental racism, which was a concept that they had never really wrapped their heads around until they started finding out more information about, well, like
0: putting an oil uh, refinery next to a neighborhood that just happens to be people of color,
3: right? You know, or the shipyards out there that have been falsified. You know, the records have been falsified and they're not cleaned up and they are still radioactive. and, and none of the kids knew anything about this, or you know, the PG&E plant that polluted everything, or every other thing that's happening in the Bayview Hunters Point, for example.
0: So. You end up doing a show about environmental racism, then with the kids. Yeah, and you yeah. get them to write it.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was it was really it was a tough one too. And their guide was actually based on a real guy that they met. This guy named Leotis, who was um, was o o g. You know, and he t- came and talked to them one day because he works for this green action group now, and he and he talked to them about all the people. How when he was little and he used to play on the shipyards and all his friends died of cancer. Mm. You know, I mean, the life expectancy in the Bayview Hunters Point is significantly lower than other parts of the city because of all the toxins out there. So they were really, at, at one point, they were like really sober. And one kid says, it's like they don't care if we die. And it was, that was just like, boom so to
0: come upon this and to see the kids turn out a a play about this is very powerful
3: yeah it's very powerful
0: so you were talking to me about the importance of popular theater
3: theater could be an endangered species and it worries me because it's one of the oldest art forms there is We do popular theater, and by that I don't mean just popular like, wow, it's popular like Hamilton's popular. But it's the kind of theater that is relatable, that you don't have to be a scholar to understand what's happening. We deal with archetypes and stories that people can identify with, and it goes back to the ancient Greeks it goes back to the commedia dell'arte or the jatra in india or um, kabuki or any number and and, and the common language is, is recognizing the commonality of people, you know, and the way people behave, and those archetypes, which are not to be confused with stereotypes, but just people are people. And so, when you tell stories like that, you offer people the opportunity to be able to see another point of view that maybe isn't theirs. And I think that's really essential right now. And comic theater is even more fun because you can tell a story, you can make your point, you can make people laugh. And while they're laughing, they're ingesting all this information. And then they're going home on the bus a half an hour later, and they're still, ha, ha, and then they go, wait a minute. I never realized, ding, and so it's kind of like a, the old spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, you know, you can get your information across when people are laughing, whereas if you're just like talking at them, like, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, like, I'm telling this, I'm saying this, I'm shouting this, I'm shouting that, you know, and this way you can just show people and and what they're going through, and, and the crossroads, they they're at and and the decisions they make and why they make them and hopefully if you make them funny and make them sing at the same time you know you've done your job and then people get something from it
0: yeah that's great. It's it's sort of like Brecht with a happy face.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and we all need a happy face yeah, these yeah, days. <laughs> that's great.
0: Well, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, Ellen. I, I've known you for years, and I'm glad to be your friend. And uh, it's likewise. I, you've had a wonderful career, and you've done lots of good for people with art. So anyway, I want to thank you.
3: Thank you, Dougie.
0: Thanks to our artist of the show, theater activist Ellen Callis. Thanks to our techmeister, Marshall Downtown Brown, and thanks to our jack of all trades, Ken Kraus. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.